the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes says, Reconciliation begins with confrontational truth-telling. Dr. Sung Chan Ra says, I've been speaking about this for 30 years, and I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure how to unravel it. Uh, Dr. Ra taught me a few years ago about the social construction of reality. And Sarah's going to cue up a slide. Uh, this is how it happens. This is how reality is socially constructed. Um, first, values and identity are externalized. So a group of people voice or express or articulate their values and our, their identity outside of themselves. They externalize it. And then second, those values and identity are institutionalized. They are built into systems that reflect those values, that reflects that identity. And then finally, those values, that identity is internalized in those who participate in the system. So the, the system, the, the institution forms people. It continues to form people in these values and identity that were first externalized and then institutionalized. And this cycle just goes on and on. For example, when we started Storyline, a core team of us got together. We began to dream about what are our values for church, for mission, And we articulated, we voiced, we externalized values for hospitality and justice and mission for a a simple structure, lightweight and low maintenance, so on and so forth. And then we went to work seeking to build a structure. Uh, As simple as it was, it was still a structure. It was an institution of sorts we were building that expressed those values in this little network of missional communities. Uh, and now Storyline as a community, as an institution, as much as it pains me to say that, continues to form people into those same values, to internalize those values, hopefully for hospitality and love and justice and inclusion in people, uh, and in all of us who are participating in this community. So as reality is socially constructed, it reflects not only the best parts of us, but also the worst parts. Uh, cue the next slide, Sarah. Ra uh, taught me about how reality was socially constructed around the enslavement of black bodies in America. How certain values about whiteness and black bodies was externalized and then institutionalized. Uh, in the institution of American slavery and then internalized by those within the system, both in the slaveholders and the white folks and in those who were enslaved. And then how that institution was dismantled with the Emancipation Proclamation and then a, a new institution was socially constructed, that of Jim Crow segregation, where white and black folks had different parts of town they lived in, 
They drank from different water fountains. They sat on different sections of the bus. And, and when that system was dismantled, at least apparently so, in the civil rights movement, another system cropped up, the private prison system, which imprisoned black bodies at radically disproportionate rates. The system of mass incarceration, also known as the new Jim Crow, the new segregation. Maybe you have been uh, with your kids or um, just, you know, because it's fun, to a splash park. Uh, not the pool splash park, one of the many in our city that it's a flat surface uh, and there's water shooting up all over the place. One of my favorite uh, parts is all of those little holes in the ground that shoot up water. And I love watching the kids go and try to um, uh, step on the water. Uh, holes to keep the water from coming out and then they notice that water comes stronger out of other water holes in the same line. You know what I'm talking about? Like they're, they, they don't yet get that there's water pressure below the surface that is causing the water to pop up so that as much as they try to stamp down the water, it's going to come up somewhere. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. You can dismantle a system, but there's still water pressure beneath the surface. It's going to pop up in another place. So what is the water pressure here? What, where is it coming from? Well, uh, it's a story. It's connected to those values and identity that we talked about being externalized and internalized. It's social imagination. Um, that imagination about how reality is, about what our experience of the world and each other is, that's what informs our values, our identity. That's what constructs reality. So next slide. In this case, the water pressure, the, the narrative that flows through all of it is the narrative of white supremacy. That narrative is what is fueling the continued construction of new systems that are shaped by its imagination. Uh, Dr. Walker Barnes defines white supremacy as the notion that white people, including their bodies, aesthetics, beliefs, values, customs, and culture, are inherently superior to all other races and therefore should wield dominion over the rest of creation, including other people groups, the animal kingdom, and the earth itself. And so it's after all of this, Dr. Ross talking through the way that reality is constructed and institutionalized around this narrative of white supremacy that he says, I don't know. I, I've been advocating. I have been speaking against this for 30 years and I, I'm not sure what to do. It is so pervasive in the way that it, it, it seems to run through everything. Ah, it's overwhelming. I, I'm not sure how to subvert it or unravel. In the 15th century, Pope Nicholas V issued a series of, my notes went by, just a second. I didn't have it all memorized. I know y'all are real surprised. Oh, where'd you go? Come back. Okay. All right, I was saying something about Nick. Nick V. Here we go. 
in the 15th century, Pope Nicholas V issued a series of papal bulls, not paper bulls. Uh, this is not paper mache or uh, origami we're talking about. These are like religious memos that formed what became known as the doctrine of discovery. So this is the Catholic Church issuing some religious memos in the 15th century uh, that form a set of legal principles because the church and the government were more uh, intertwined than they are in our current cultural experience. But the church set out this set of legal principles that were to guide the European conquest and colonization of indigenous peoples, as well as the subjugation and enslavement of black African peoples as the labor pool for building out these new colonized worlds. Uh, Prince Henry of Portugal was responsible for the first black slave trade on our historical record. And this is what Pope Nicholas V called Prince Henry. He called him an agent of God for the work that he was doing in the slave trade, in, in the, tra- the trading of black bodies for the sake of subjugation and for the sake of forced labor. Uh, Prince Henry even went so far as to offer two black boys as a tithe offering to God um, as an act of worship after purchasing 200 black slaves. Uh, Prince Henry said his chief motivation for slave trade was the evangelization and eternal salvation of the slaves. Uh, the story of white supremacy, the, the narrative, the, the imagination of white supremacy is not some fundamental evil problem out there in the world, uh, in, in the culture beyond us to dismantle associated singularly with guys who, you know, wear white, white masks or with guys who align with Christian nationalism. Uh, it is in here. It originated. In here, in the church, it was given birth by diseased Christian theological imagination. And if you're curious to dive deeper into how that plays out, I'd encourage you to pick up Willie Jennings' book, The Christian Imagination. Uh, Jesus says that we have to turn. We have to repent in order to enter the kingdom of God. Turn away from the way of an opposing kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, toward the kingdom of God. We cannot enter into the kingdom of God in our day unless we turn from the kingdom of white supremacy. We cannot enter into the kingdom of God in our day unless we turn from the kingdom of white supremacy. And the, the first step in turning from it, Dr. Walker Barnes tells us, is to tell the truth about it. The truth is that the kingdom of white supremacy is more a part of us than we are even aware. The truth is that it is baked in to the very structures of our city, our neighborhoods, and even this church. The truth is that those of us who are white benefit from this kingdom in ways that are seen and unseen. The truth is that those of us who are non-white 
are harmed by this kingdom in ways that are seen and unseen. The truth is that our collective imagination is diseased and distorted by the kingdom of white supremacy. So much so that sometimes we mistake it for the kingdom of God. The truth is that the kingdom of white supremacy is an evil lie of Satan that wrongly says white bodies are superior to all other bodies and structures reality subsequently. The truth is that all humans equally bear the image of God in diverse ways. The truth is that entering the kingdom of God means exiting the kingdom of white supremacy and cultivating alternative imagination for justice, equity, and healing that constructs reality for all of humanity's flourishing. I want to invite all of you into this truth-telling. What truths? Because I know you're learning, too. You're learning right alongside of me. What truths have you learned about the kingdom of white supremacy that we need to hear today? Leave a note in the chat and let me know. Daryl. I guess the thing that just jumped out more for me, I mean, we could we could say a lot of things, right? Um, but I think the thing that jumps out more to me um, in my current life is that it's so easy to be de- white supremacy is so easy to be defensive. You know, uh, it, it's so easy for us to immediately re- immediately react to the charge of, well, that's not me. Um, or I didn't do that. Or I'm, I don't identify with that. Or I, you know, that's not the kind of person I am. It's, it's the immediate reaction that we have because I, I want to be the nice guy and I want people to perceive me as the nice guy. And so it's easy for me to immediately get defensive when I hear anyone talk about it and just say, but not me, but that misses the whole point anyway. Right. Um, the thing, and I, I think I've shared this before, but, uh, where it really hit me was to realize that my father, um, got a doctorate in pharmacy thanks to the GI bill after world war two and the Korean war. And I went to a school that was completely integrated. It was the only school in our town in in East Texas. And many of those who were black lived in poverty or much lower income area than I did. Um, They did not have that leg up benefit that I had because my father was middle class, upper middle class for that matter, because he was able to take advantage of the GI Bill and get a degree in pharmacy, where technically um, black veterans had the ability to take the GI Bill, but they wouldn't be allowed in, in the schools of pharmacy. They wouldn't be allowed. Uh, they were discouraged from uh, using that. And that was a, a, and that's just one example of pure privilege that I grew up with. Um, where I was, I had the luxury of deciding whether I wanted to go to college or not. 
and to goof around at college. It was the luxury I had. And so there's this defensiveness that we have. Uh, and I say we collectively because we do. We are defensive about it. Yeah. Thank you, Daryl, for that. You know, I, I, I think what you're saying raises some really helpful frames. Um, I think a lot of the conversation about racism um, for a long time, especially among uh, conservative evangelical white folks was on the level of, uh, uh, prejudices, internal prejudices, individual attitudes that we have toward people of color and, and, uh, it, to, to connect back to that construction of reality thing, the, the internalized part of that cycle, uh, ways that we might be formed to think negatively and, uh, it's true that, that a lot of us don't carry the same kind of, I don't carry the same kind of prejudice that my grandfather did, for instance. Um, but what you're saying about the GI Bill, it points to this other part of the picture, the institutionalization part, right? The systemic part that we, we're still in the midst of systems and structures that favor, uh, white folks over people of color. And, uh, I have benefited those in the same way. Uh, that you have, Daryl. I think you, you make some great <clears throat> points there. Thank you for sharing. Uh, and it's easy. It's easy if we just stay on the level of internalization to get defensive and to say, oh, well, that's not, that's not me because it ignores that, that systemic picture that's, that's at play. That's what I'm hearing you say. Megan says, we can't be nice and challenge white supremacy. We have to be bolder. Uh, uh, I'm not going to talk after every comment, but this is making me think of something good. Yeah, Julie's eye rolling over here. Hey, I'm the preacher today, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, Sana, Reverend Sana Key, uh, she had us do this exercise in our neighborhood seminary course where she like, all right, white people, repeat after me. I don't, you can leave your amens at home. Uh, I don't need you to like me. I'm doing this because it's right. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's right. Uh, it, it's it's not about having folks uh, approve of us or trying to be nice about it. We've got to be bold because it's the right thing to do. Uh, Julie Kaiser, it's your turn. You've been waiting so patiently. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I think so, this is now repetitive from what y'all just said, so I'll keep it brief. But um, I think a part of white supremacy is recognizing that I'm complicit in my beneficiary and the way I benefit from these systems, even if I did not intend to suppress someone in the meantime, but I'm complicit just by way of which I benefit from systems that have set before me. And also I think another hard realization is um, when people say, look how much progress we've made or things aren't as bad as they used to be. Um, and that kind of being it, that, that that's just another branch off that same tree of, you know, we've come a long way or we, we don't do all these things we used to do anymore, um, as a measure of, um, you know, prog, progress or make, I guess making ourselves feel better of like, we're not like our granddads and we're not, you know, like keeping slaves. So we must be doing really good and should feel better about ourselves and pat ourselves on the back that we, um, you know, we're not doing all those bad things that we've made progress. Thanks, Julie. Uh, Ben, Ben's next. Yeah. To the systemic reality piece, uh, COVID has revealed, um, systemic 
um, reality of white supremacy as uh, communities of color, particularly black communities, have been disproportionately affected um, in both uh, infections and death rate. Mm. Uh, the vaccine distribution, um, disproportionately communities of color do not have the same access as white supremacy. And this past week uh, with the blizzards, communities of color disproportionately receive far more power outages uh, than white communities. And so for me, it's hard not to look at the last year in those three cases mm. and not identify that there's, there's systemic reality of white supremacy in our systems, including gas and electricity. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Sarah Holland. Um, I, um, I read last year, the color compromise by Tamar Tisby. And so specifically thinking about the role the church has played in this and how we as a church, um, have missed out because, um, because we have always been in this place of supremacy. So the reason that the black church exists is because when people of color would go to white chair would not, would not allow them in, would say, Oh no, you're up here. You have to go into the balcony or you can meet in our building, but we want to know what's going on. And um, so there's, so there was control even from the very beginning of specifically within churches Mm -hmm. and, um, and what that has cost us is the, we did not get to witness the way that God moved in in those black churches because we um because of this this also suffer not not like oh woe is us but like white supremacy affects us mm-hmm. um just as much as it affects people of color because because we have chosen to live a separate life and be in separate circles. Yes. Everybody is harmed by it. That's right. Uh Sarah Walker. Um, yeah, two things. The first one being that, uh, kind of like what Ben said, kind of riffing off of what Daryl said also, I read, um, The Color of Law this year, and I know Julie's read it, and some other people have read it, but I, and I've, I've said this <laughs> in another context, but like, it was mortifying and shameful because I was reading it and I realized, Oh goodness, it's not just that all those people want to live together, it's that we force them together with explicit policies that created segregation and that now make it easy for us to discriminate in terms of resources. Like we set up this entire thing and I was it was eye-opening to me that I had never thought to question why our neighborhoods are so segregated and um, it's just been a major point of repentance for me, especially as Ryan and I are thinking about looking for a house. And I'm like, what does that mean for us when we're looking for a house? Uh, and then the other thing that I wanted to say um, is that, uh, you know, Shinko Walker Barnes talks about this in her book, in the one that you're referencing, Charles, that I bring the voices of my people. Um, but the intersection of patriarchy and white supremacy does a lot of damage. And the doctrine of discovery comes from male supremacy, comes from that idea of um, 
conquest and domination as being like the default or the best way for humans to be. And so I think that um, there's a lot of wisdom in looking at not just white supremacy, but the way that male supremacy has influenced the church and the way that it has made things like white supremacy acceptable and um, normal. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. Those, those intersections uh, between maleness and whiteness and, uh, and you can, you can insert, uh, you know, heteronormative stuff in there. I mean, uh, uh, across the board, the intersections only, they just amplify the, uh, uh, and magnify the, the oppressive dynamics. That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, Jesse writes in the comments about the danger of the white moderate who prefers a negative piece, which is the absence of tension, to a positive piece, which is the presence of justice. Yeah, uh, that's a great word. Um, I, I don't know if that's a quote from MLK Jr. directly. Uh, yes, it yeah. certainly sounds like it. Yeah, it's MLK. Right on. Thank you, Jesse. Well, this Lent, we are in a message series uh and don't don't worry i'm i'm at the end i usually i do this kind of thing at the beginning of my sermons if you're starting to have an internal freak out uh we're in a message series right now called have mercy and in this series we are journeying through gospel texts and finding ourselves in the characters that oppose the kingdom of god and to try to tell the truth uh about it And then rather than spin into a shame cycle about that truth uh, or to stay in that feeling of discomfort, I mean, we need to sit with the discomfort and the tension of it. But we also need to run to Jesus and cry out, have mercy and let Jesus heal us and bring us to new life and to new constructions of reality. Um, In that vein, Every message this Lent will end with a liturgy of confession and grace. And I've chosen a piece today called Our Little Lives by Howard Thurman, who is an African-American theologian, philosopher, contemplative, and civil rights activist. Um, and he reminds us that one of the most important aspects of healing is offering our wounding up to God. So I want to invite you to take a few deep breaths and to settle your body and to calm your mind and then to hear Thurman's words. Our little lives, our big problems, these we place upon thy altar. The quietness in thy temple of silence again and again rebuffs us. For some, there is no discipline to hold them steady in the waiting, and the minds reject the noiseless invasion of thy spirit. 
For some, there is no will to offer what is central in the thoughts. The confusion is so manifest, there's no starting place to take hold. For some, the evils of the world tear down all concentrations and scatter the focus of the high resolves. I invite you to take a deep breath. War and the threat of war has covered us with heavy shadows, making the days big with forebodings, the nights crowded with frenzies, dreams, and restless churnings. We do not know how to do what we know to do. We do not know how to be what we know to be. We do not know how to do what we know to do. We do not know how to be. What we know to be. I invite you to take a deep breath. Our little lives, our big problems, these we place upon thy thy altar. Brood over our spirits, our Father. Blow upon them whatever dream thou hast for us, that there may glow once again upon our hearths the light from thy altar. Pour out upon us whatever our spirits need of shock, of lift, of release, that we may find strength for these days, courage and hope for tomorrow. In confidence we rest in thy sustaining grace, which makes possible triumph in defeat, gain in loss, and love in hate. We rejoice this day to say, our little lives, our big problems, these we place upon thy altar. Amen.